thought the funniest line about this year's Supreme Court term came from uh, Miguel Estrada, who was speaking to the Federalist Society a few weeks ago. And he described the overall term as so boring. <laughs> it was so boring, he said, that this was the year that uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg convinced her colleagues finally to join her in nodding off at the bench. <laughs> now, <laughs> and he has to practice before these people. Anyway, um, it was, however, not boring at all if you care about class actions or about a number of other areas of business law. And uh, <coughs> the Walmart case, of course, was just one of several in which uh, parts of the media adopted a rather simple-minded uh, approach in covering it, the which side are you on approach, uh, in which again and again we would hear that there was this mean majority, or at least four mean justices, who would always rule for the business side, and four or possibly five uh, kind-hearted justices who saw the human element. Well, there isn't a lot wrong with this way of couching the cases, but one of the most uh, direct things that's wrong with it is that it keeps on leaving you surprised when the court actually comes in with its rulings. Uh, when, for, as Jonathan Adler will be telling us, the global warming case comes out 9 to 0, you, you almost forget who are the soft and, and who are the hard ones. Uh, when uh, Walmart winds up prevailing on the dispositive issue by a 9 to nothing or, or a unanimous vote, um, again, you almost forget which side you're supposed to root for. And uh, the truth is, as all three of our... Um, uh, panelists will be talking about, it is always more complicated than that. There are always more principles going on uh, that the justices are, are hewing to. And Ilya Shapiro mentioned earlier today uh, about how proud we are of the Cato Supreme Court. And he mentioned that we are proud of how incredibly speedy it is that it comes out in a matter of two or three months after the last decided cases, as opposed to the law, uh, law review standard, I think, at law schools of two or three years. Uh, and uh, the speediness, though, is only one of the things that we are proud of. Partly, it is also the point of view. Uh, it would not be easy to find uh, law reviews that come out with uh, a general dedication to Madisonian principles. The thing that I like best about Cato's approach, though, is that this thing is readable. It is amazingly readable. You do not drown in footnotes. Uh, you will, if you are a non-lawyer or a lawyer who knows nothing about these particular issues, you will find that you are actually led along, understanding it, rather than being bewildered and mystified. I think we'll find that from all three of our uh, essays being discussed today. The first one is by Roger Pallon, the Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute and the founder and director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, without which we would not be here. Uh, Roger has written everywhere. I'm not going to sum up all the publications. And he has appeared on all broadcast shows. I'm not going to sum those up either. Maybe not the soap operas. Um, uh, he how, before how about to the O'Reilly factor? Have you you no. have been on the O'Reilly. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, that was an experience. So that's the closest to soap operas that he's uh, been on. The... Um, he holds not only a BA from Columbia, but both a PhD uh, from Chicago and a JD. And he held five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including uh, at state as well as at justice. Um, his writing on the Constitution is particularly celebrated. And he will be discussing for us uh, the issue of preemption, which came up a lot this year. Roger.
Well, thank you, Wally. Uh, this panel is headed up with federalism as its first subject, and it will be, but uh, as you saw from the last panel, federalism was very much in evidence there, and indeed it is evidence everywhere, um, because as John Eastman pointed out, the doctrine of enumerated powers brings us to these questions increasingly, and I think many of us in this room are absolutely delighted to see that doctrine revived, as I said in my opening remarks this morning, because um, it is the cornerstone of the Constitution, the very foundation, its theory of legitimacy is rooted in the doctrine of enumerated powers. The power is legitimate only insofar as it has been granted by the people, which means that sovereignty in our system rests ultimately with the people. Um, it falls to me to, uh, as Wally said, discuss the court's preemption cases. Um, in the last term, the court uh, once again tackled uh, one of the most difficult and problematic areas of our law, and it did so in no fewer than five cases. Uh, these are cases that are coming increasingly before the court in recent years, and they are because Congress is legislating increasingly. It has been over the last 50 and more years, and so it's not surprising that you have conflicts between federal and state law reaching the court. Uh, in my essay in this review, year's review, I discuss all five, uh, two of which I believe that the court got wrong. This afternoon, I'm going to summarize all five very briefly, uh, but I warn you now that uh, owing to the subject, this is pretty heavy going. Um, <clears throat> preemption is a complex area of our law involving both constitutional questions and even more questions about statutory interpretation. Let me start then by saying a little about the theory of the matter by way of just setting a framework for the discussion of the cases themselves. And again, I'm only going to skim the surface of these cases. They're all extraordinarily complex. I'm going to just try to give you a flavor of how they run. Preemption takes us to basic constitutional principles, as John Eastman argued in the last session, to better protect liberty. The Constitution institutes federalism. To do that, the system of dual sovereignty between the federal and state governments, sometimes pitting power against power, as James Madison uh, argued in the Federalist 51, but other times allowing for concurrent or overlapping power. Although the Tenth Amendment makes it clear that the federal government's powers are delegated and hence limited, the balance of power being reserved to the states or the people the Supremacy Clause of Article 6 resolves conflicts between federal and state law by providing that federal law, quote, shall be the supreme law of the land, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary notwithstanding. Thus, although the Tenth Amendment establishes a fairly clear presumption in favor of the states, when state law conflicts with is to the contrary of federal law, the presumption by virtue of the Supremacy Clause is on the other side with federal law. Thus the crucial question in any preemption case is whether the relevant federal and state laws do in fact conflict. And that's often not an easy question to answer. So here's a roadmap for it. In some cases, federal law expressly preempts state law. Yet even there, the statutory terms may be ambiguous or subject to manipulation. Moreover, as in three of the cases this term, 
a federal statute that expressly preempts state law may contain a saving clause that preserves at least some of the state law over the matter at issue. Quite often, however, courts face only implied preemption, of which there are two kinds. Field preemption concerns limited but exclusive areas of federal authority, even without any express congressional statement to that effect. More common and more difficult are cases in which preemption is implicit insofar as the party finds it impossible to comply with both federal and state law, or more difficult still, insofar as state law stands as an obstacle to the accomplishment and execution of the full purposes and objectives of federal law. So now that we're clear about all of that, we can proceed. Finally, though, let me just say a word about the politics of preemption. We ordinarily think of conservatives and libertarians as supporting limited federal power, especially police power over health and safety matters, which belongs mainly with the states. Yet here, for constitutional reasons just stemmed, most conservatives and libertarians believe that in many, if not most cases, federal power should trump state power. By contrast, modern liberals are ordinarily thought to favor federal power, especially federal regulatory power over economic affairs under Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. Yet many of those liberals in the tort bar and among conservative, uh, consumer advocates and state officials argue for the supremacy of state law as providing more protection for individual rights than federal law may provide. My concern here, however, is not with the pol politics of preemption, but with what the Constitution requires. So let's turn to the five decisions the court handed down last term, starting with the three that I thought the court got right. In Chamber of Commerce v. Whiting, the Chamber and various business and civil rights groups brought a pre-enforcement suit against Arizona state officials charged with administering the state's Legal Arizona Workers Act, which provides for suspension of the licenses of state employers who knowingly or intentionally employ unauthorized aliens in certain circumstances. The act also requires that all Arizona employers use the federal e-verify system to determine the immigration status of their employees. Set aside the merits or demerits of our current immigration law and practices, which are many, the question here is one of law, not policy. And on that, given the statutory text and the facts, this was a relatively simple case. In fact, all three courts that considered it found that the Federal Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA, did not preempt the Arizona law. Writing for a 5-3 court, with Justice Kagan recused, Chief Justice Roberts showed in great detail how IRCA, although it expressly preempted state law, contained a savings clause within which the state's licensing provision squarely fell. Indeed, he wrote that, quote, Arizona went the extra mile in ensuring that its law closely tracks IRCA's provisions in all material respects. And he added, concerning the separate dissents of Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, that, quote, it's not surprising that the two dissents have sharply different views of how to read the statute, since that's the sort of thing that can happen when statutory analysis is so untethered to the text, end of quote. Turning to the second, more complicated decision, AT&T v. Concepcion, here too there's a saving clause, but here it did not save the state law. The case arose when the Concepcions, in a class action suit, 
charged AT&T with false advertising and fraud after they were charged a $30 sales tax on the retail value of a free phone under the standard form service contract with AT&T. In answer, AT&T pointed to the contract, which provided for arbitration of disputes, not litigation, adding that the Federal Arbitration Act controlled the case. The FAA preempted state law, AT&T continued, not expressly, but by implication, because the state law at issue conflicted with the act's purposes and objectives. In response, the Concepciones argued that the act makes agreements to arbitrate, quote, valid, irrevocable, and enforceable, save upon such grounds as exist at law or inequity for the revocation of any contract. That's the statutory language. And the California state court, they continued, uh, argued uh, that uh, uh, it held that class waivers in consumer arbitration agreements are unconscionable if the agreement is in the adhesion contract, uh, the damages are small, and the party with inferior bargaining power alleges a deliberate scheme of fraud. Thus, the state law satisfied the FAA's savings clause, the Concepcion's concluded. Justice Scalia wasn't buying. Writing for a majority of five, he held that a core purpose of the Federal Arbitration Act was to allow and encourage companies to use arbitration as a fast and efficient way to resolve consumer disputes, which class arbitration would seriously frustrate. In fact, he added, the issue here goes back to the long-standing hostility of courts to arbitration agreements, especially in California, and to the tendency of courts to expand the body of, quote, generally applicable contract defenses to include ever narrower grounds for contract revocation. Thus, based on the purposes and objectives of the Federal Arbitration Act, California's law was in direct conflict with the federal law and hence was preempted. Let me add that after reading this decision, I sensed that the majority was concerned as much with modern assaults on contract, including those based on doctrines of substantive unconscionability, as with fidelity to preemption principles. If so, that's a good thing. A still more complex case was Brusevitz v. Wyatt, a drug decision in which the court held six to two, again with Justice Kagan recusing herself, that plaintiffs injured by vaccines they claim were improperly designed cannot sue vaccine manufacturers but must instead seek remedies from the no-fault compensation system Congress created in 1986 to address the problem that manufacturers fearful of such suits would simply not produce vaccines. No vaccines are completely safe, of course. There will always be some people who have adverse reactions. But under state tort suits, manufacturers were getting clobbered by jury awards. One of them testified before Congress that its potential tort liability exceeded its annual sales by a factor of 200. They're not going to stay in business long under those conditions. So, as they were uh, leaving the business, Congress stepped in with a no-fault compensation system for victims. Without going into the complex facts and history of this case, the legal question was how to interpret and apply the word unavoidable in the following statutory text. Quote, no vaccine manufacturer shall be liable in a civil action for damages arising from a vaccine-related injury or death 
associated with the administration of a vaccine if the injury or death resulted from side effects that were unavoidable even though the vaccine was properly prepared and was accompanied by proper directions and warnings. You read this case and your eyes will glaze over when you see how Justice Scalia parsed the language to it. It is all but inscrutable. So those of you who want to sleep well tonight would be advised to turn to this case. You will rest comfortably. It was Justice Scalia again who parsed that language correctly, I believe, as saying that vaccine manufacturers would be held liable for manufacturing defects and for inadequate directions and warnings, but not for unavoidable design defects in vaccines that had already passed rigorous FDA testing procedures. Victims of such defects would have to find their remedies in the federal no-fault system. Were it otherwise, were they able to sue in state courts for their losses, there would be no point to the system Congress had created to ensure that vaccines would be available at all. So this was a law that was passed purely on cost-benefit analysis and properly so in order to strike a balance so that victims would get some compensation on the one hand and that uh, we would have uh, vaccines available to us on the other hand. Let me turn now to a case that I believe the court got wrong, uh, Pliva v. Mensing. This was another drug decision uh, uh, that uh, looks simply on the surface, looks simple on the surface, but in the end is not. The question here was whether individuals injured by generic drugs they claimed had inadequate warning labels could sue the manufacturers for damages under state tort law or whether federal FDA regulations for drug labeling preempted such suits. Two years ago in Wyeth v. Levine, about which I wrote uh, in the Cato Supreme Court Review at that time, the court uh, ruled that brand name manufacturers could be sued in state court for inadequate warning labels. The court was wrong there too, I argued in that review, citing Justice Alito, who argued in dissent that the majority had turned a simple medical malpractice suit into a frontal assault on the FDA's regulatory regime for drug labeling. There, the physician's assistant ignored no fewer than six warnings in bold when she administered the drug, so it's likely that a seventh warning would have made no difference whatsoever in the outcome of that. Here, the issue was different. FDA regulations required that generic drug manufacturers use the same label warnings as brand name manufacturers used, which is why the defendant here argued that it was impossible to increase the warnings without violating federal labeling regulations, even when evidence suggested that warnings should be increased. Justice Thomas, writing for the majority of five, agreed with that argument. But Justice Sotomayor, and you can imagine how it must have killed me to defend her in this, wrote in dis uh, writing in dissent, took apart the impossibility claims. It is true, she said, that generic manufacturers cannot modify their labels without FDA approval. But they do have a duty under federal law to monitor the safety of their products. And they may propose label changes to the FDA but they also have a state law duty to provide adequate warnings. And so the question is whether federal regulations make it impossible to satisfy that state law duty. Here is where Sotomayor zeroes in. 
Impossibility is an affirmative defense that manufacturers have a burden to show, she pointed out, and it is not impossible to show impossibility, and I quote, if a generic manufacturer defendant proposed a label change to the FDA, but the FDA rejected the proposal, it would be impossible for that defendant to comply with the state law duty to warn. Likewise, impossibility would be established if the FDA had not yet responded to a generic manufacturer's request for a label change at the time a plaintiff's injuries arose. A generic manufacturer might also show that the FDA had itself considered whether to request enhanced warnings in light of the evidence on which a plaintiff's claim rests, but had decided to leave the warnings as is. But these are questions of fact to be established through discovery, she said, because the burden of proving impossibility falls on the defendant, she concludes. I would hold that federal law does not render it impossible for generic manufacturers to comply with state law duty to warn as a categorical matter. End of quote. In sum, nothing in federal law prevents generic manufacturers from taking steps that might enable them to satisfy their state law duties, none of which is to say that the evidence here warranted taking such steps. That is yet another matter to be determined at trial. And so state law here should not have been preempted by federal law unless the facts of the case warranted it. But those facts were never adjudicated at trial because the court found preemption. The Frith preemption case, and I see my time is running short, uh, decided last term was Williamson v. Mazda. Although it was decided unanimously, I argue in the review that the court got it wrong. Unfortunately, however, uh, it's far too complex a case to discuss in a short context, com compass, so I'll leave it to you to discover in the review just why Justice Breyer, arguing for the court, was wrong. I'll whet your appetite, however, with this. Ten years ago, the court held correctly that federal regulations that gave auto manufacturers a choice in passive restraint systems between installing airbags or automobile seat belts shielded them from state tort law if a jury found they made the wrong choice in a given case. By contrast, this term, the court held that federal regulations that gave auto manufacturers a choice of whether to install lap and shoulder belts or lap belts only in rear middle seats did not shield them from state tort liability. See if you can square those two decisions. I submit you cannot. Let me conclude then with a final point about the very point of preemption. Even if the court does get it right in a preemption case by reading the law correctly, that doesn't mean, of course, that the decision necessarily secures or advances the liberty the Constitution was written at bottom to secure. That will be a function, rather, of whether Congress and federal agencies on one hand or states, on the other, have done a better job of regulating toward that end. And on that point, we have to be clear. Even for libertarians, there is a place for regulation, whether federal or state, in fleshing out the theory of rights that stands behind the Constitution, as distinguished from regulations that have redistribution as their aim. The former are perfectly legitimate if they're done correctly. The Tenth Amendment creates a presumption in favor of the states doing it, 
But the Supremacy Clause, together with Congress's enumerated powers, can easily rebut that presumption. Whether too easily will be fodder for the court for years to come as it struggles with this most complex area of our law. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Professor Jonathan Adler teaches environmental, administrative, and constitutional law at Case Western Reserve uh, School of Law in Ohio. Uh, his uh, writing has appeared in the Harvard Environmental Law Review, the Wall, Wall Street Journal, and many other places. Uh, he is the author or editor of four books on environmental policy and over a dozen book chapters. But let's get down to that. So you all know him because he contributes to the Verlock Conspiracy, that wonderful weblog. Uh, two of whose earlier contribu contributors were on earlier panels today, uh, Professor Post and Professor Kerr. Um, I believe that uh, Professor Adler contributed anonymously uh, to the conspiracy until he got tenure, which is a wise move, and then revealed himself under his real name. Um, <coughs> before that, he clerked for the Honorable David Santel on the D.C. Circuit, and he also put in some years working for Cato's friendly competitor, the uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute, uh, which does such great work on many environmental and regulatory issues. Professor Adler. Thank you, Wally, and, and thank you, Roger and Ilya, for, for having me back at Cato uh, here on Constitution Day. Uh, the case I'm, I'm going to talk about is American Electric Power versus Connecticut, a case that, that could have been quite significant, but as I will try and suggest, uh, actually uh, didn't do all that much and is perhaps more notable for what the court did not do uh, than what it did. It was the court's second encounter with climate change, and unlike its first encounter in Massachusetts versus EPA, it basically left the law where it had found it uh, and was quite straightforward, uh, and on top of that was unanimous. I want to talk about the case a little bit, uh, and then, if there's time permitting, perhaps put it in, in the broader context of the court's environmental cases and uh, this broader narrative that we hear repeated so often that the court uh, is, is a pro-business court. Um, and I should just add, you know, if, if the, the law of preemption, which Rogers just talked about, is both complex and a mess, uh, one thing that's fortunate about discussing American electric power versus Connecticut is the central legal question in this case uh, was actually quite clear uh, and straightforward, and uh, the Supreme Court unanimously, uh, as at least as a matter of precedent, got it absolutely correct. Uh, this case arose uh, after several states and some conservation organizations filed suit against five large utility companies alleging that their emissions of greenhouse gases contribute to a public nuisance uh, in the form of global warming, and that this public nuisance is actionable in federal court under the federal common law. Uh, it, these uh, five companies were the largest uh, emitters in the United States uh, and included, interestingly enough, uh, uh, of the dozens upon dozens of facilities that these companies owned, perhaps only coincidentally, only one facili facility was located in any of the plaintiff states. Now, the, uh, this case is, has been in the courts or was in the courts for about six years, uh, but the outcome of American Electric Power was really determined in 2007 when the Supreme Court decided Massachusetts versus EPA. In fact, it was always understood that the viability of public nuisance claims under the federal common law would be dependent upon whether or not the Supreme Court determined that the EPA had authority over greenhouse gases 
under, Clean Air Act, under the Clean Air Act. In fact, that was the whole point of these suits. When these suits were first filed, it was well understood and, in fact, often remarked upon that the primary purpose of these suits was to make it, if not difficult, then at least painful for the Environmental Protection Agency and industry groups to argue that the Clean Air Act did not apply to greenhouse gases because the consequence of those arguments would be that states and perhaps others would have claims in federal court under the federal common law to sue emitters of greenhouse gases, not simply the five largest emitters, but perhaps any significant emitter in federal court under the, the federal common law of public nuisance. The idea was to put the EPA, which was disclaiming any authority over greenhouse gases and industry groups in kind of a double bind or, and, and put them in a situation where even if they could win on the Clean Air Act claims, they would still be in uh, legal jeopardy. Uh, and that, as I said, that was understood. In fact, I was at quite a few conferences prior to Massachusetts versus EPA uh, being decided where attorneys involved in this litigation would remark about how clever they thought they were to put industry and EPA in this position, in a position of, of, of opening the industry up to common law claims if they were successful at arguing that the Clean Air Act did not cover greenhouse gases. But by the time 2007 rolled around and the Supreme Court decided Massachusetts versus EPA and decided, among other things, that greenhouse gases did constitute pollutants under the Clean Air Act, this understanding of the implications that this would have for the, the displacement of federal common law claims had largely been forgotten. Uh, the Second Circuit at this point had had the American Electric Power case for several months and had been held it pending the Massachusetts versus EPA decision. And then after Massachusetts versus EPA came out, requested supplemental briefing in June of 2007, and then proceeded to sit on the case for over two more years without requesting any additional briefing or any additional argument. And when it finally issued an opinion in September 2009, it not only found that these cases could go forward, uh, but it answered uh, quite, uh, quite a few other claims, uh, all in favor of the plaintiffs, in some cases in quite sweeping fashion, and in some cases completely unnecessarily to allowing the cases to go forward. The Second Circuit found that all parties, not merely the states, had standing. Both the states and the private parties had standing, the Second Circuit found. It found, it was, the, it was uh, found that even though the Supreme Court had never held this, that private parties could pursue a claim of public nuisance under the federal common law, and most improbably, it found that despite Massachusetts versus EPA, and despite the EPA's announcement that it would begin to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, that a, federal suit, or a suit under the federal common law would not be displaced. When the Supreme Court accepted cert on this case, it was pretty clear what the ultimate result would be. The Second Circuit decision would not stand. The only real question was how the Supreme Court would reach this result. Would it question the Second Circuit standing holding? Would it get to the merits of what, what sorts of federal common law causes of action exist? Or would it hold on the narrow grounds of displacement? In the end, the latter course is the course the Supreme Court took in an 8-0 opinion by Justice Ginsburg, Justice Sotomayor, who had sat on the panel at the Second Circuit but was no longer part of the Second Circuit panel when the case was finally handed down, uh, was recused. Uh, Justice Ginsburg pointed out quite clearly and, and quite directly uh, that the Second Circuit, in its displacement discussion, had failed to follow the Supreme Court's clear, unambiguous uh, precedence 
on the question of displacement. That, in fact, it had not even applied the cases that the Second Circuit had cited, and perhaps somewhat embarrassingly, had not even followed the language that the Second Circuit had actually quoted in its decision on displacement. But the very authorities that the Second Circuit had relied upon made very clear that this litigation, uh, at least under the, under the federal common law theory, could not go forward. Uh, and I should just note here that the issue in this case is what we call displacement and not preemption. And that difference is important. The question here is not one of whether of federal law versus state law, but rather which species of federal law is to, be, is to govern uh, greenhouse gas emissions and to regulate them. Whereas preemption is often disfavored, we often see Supreme Court opinions talk discussing a presumption against preemption because of federalism concerns, because we wish to be somewhat careful before the federal government displaces states from exercising their traditional police power. In the displacement context, we have no such concern. The question is federal authority under statutes and regulations versus federal common law administered by federal courts. The federalism concerns are completely absent. And going back to Erie versus Tompkins, the Supreme Court has made clear time and again that federal common law is disfavored. The question for displacement is not, is there a conflict? Is not, is a problem being adequately addressed? But is simply the question of whether or not the political branches have addressed the question at all. And if that's the question, if the, if the Clean Air Act applies to greenhouse gases, then the answer is unmistakably clear. Because if the Clean Air Act applies to greenhouse gases, then Congress has spoken to the issue. Congress has addressed the question of greenhouse gases and whether or not it is addressed in an effective way, an efficient way, a practical way, as we're seeing, looking at some of the regulations EPA has come out with, a, a reasonable way or a sane way, or in fact even a doable way, is immaterial. All that matters is that Congress has addressed the matter, and at that point, the sole role of the courts is to, uh, is to enforce the law as has been written by Congress and, and the regulations properly issued by agencies, the courts no longer have an interstitial role to fill in the gaps of federal common law. And so some would argue this is not perhaps good doctrine, but it has been very clear doctrine for quite some time, and it's something the Second Circuit got completely wrong, and the Supreme Court unanimously corrected them. So that's what the Supreme Court held. What is inter and one other point about the displacement holding, the Supreme Court held this in part, despite an invitation from the Solicitor General to decide the case in a narrower way, a way that would be perhaps a little more consistent with what the Second Circuit had done. The Solicitor General's office had filed a brief saying that displacement could simply focus on the fact that since the Second Circuit's uh, opinion, or even since the Second Circuit's case had been argued three years earlier, the EPA had begun promulgating regulations, and that even if the Clean Air Act itself didn't displace federal common law causes of action, it, the existence of regulations governing the same facilities at issue would. That would have been a narrower way for the court to hold, uh, but the Supreme Court or declined that invitation because the case law was so clear. Displacement does not depend on what an agency does. Uh, and there are good reasons for that, uh, that we want displacement to hinge upon uh, what our elected representatives do, uh, not what an administrative agency does. But what did the court not do? And this is really what's significant about American electric power. Uh, the court had, there were lots of other issues the court could have reached and could have decided, issues that could have been quite significant, and the court did not address them. The first and perhaps most important is the question of standing. 
the threshold question of do the federal courts have jurisdiction over this sort of case at all? And there the court split four to four. And so the Second Circuit's holding that there was standing is left undisturbed, but there is no precedent on this question. And that's important because Massachusetts versus EPA offered two reasons why states would have standing to sue alleging climate change claims when suing the EPA. And the, plain, the state plaintiffs in Connecticut versus American Electric Power could satisfy one of those factors, the fact that you had states litigating. And Massachusetts versus EPA, the Supreme Court discovered a heretofore unknown doctrine that states get special solicitude in the area of standing. But Massachusetts versus EPA also put a lot of weight on the fact that Congress had, in the Clean Air Act, created an administrative process that the court found gave a procedural right that could be vindicated in court that would alleviate plaintiffs of some of the traditional burdens of standing. And th this sort of uh, uh, claim had been made in prior cases. But in American Electric Power, the plaintiffs couldn't claim that because their claim was not based upon trying to hold an agency to its regulatory obligations. It was a pure common law claim. So insofar as the existence of a procedural right would allow a plaintiff to argue that the normal requirements of traceability and redressability don't have to be met, in American Electric Power, there was no basis to make the standing inquiry any easier on that basis. But the court did not give us a holding there. We can assume, perhaps, that Justice Sotomayor uh, would have joined for justices finding standing and would have broadened standing, uh, but there is no holding to that effect. The other things the court did not answer, it did not answer whether or not private parties uh, can, can bring claims of public nuisance in any context, uh, whether under federal common law or otherwise in federal court. Uh, that's a question that's been left open uh, for some time. And the court did not address the preemption question, uh, did not address whether or not the, the, the state and private parties' claims under state common law, basically identical claims that emissions of greenhouse gases are contributing to this public nuisance uh, of, of global warming, uh, are, whether or not they are preempted by the Clean Air Act, the court did not address that. Justice Ginsburg gave a, uh, offered some dicta explaining why we might like these cases to be preempted, why it would not make a lot of sense to try and have courts engage in, in the, the process of trying to balance all the competing interests that are entailed in dealing with an issue like global climate change. But the court also made very clear that it was not deciding the question, allowing this case insofar as the state claims remain and other common law cases that are pending in both federal and state courts to continue. The, all the things the court did not do are significant in part because this case is often identified or has been identified in, in the past several months as further evidence that the Roberts Court has a pro-business disposition, that the Roberts Court uh, is particularly solicitous of claims brought by business groups. And there's certainly no question that business groups wanted this, this lawsuit to go away, wanted these claims to be displaced or preempted or thrown out one way or the other. Uh, but if this is a pro, what it means to be a pro-business case, it's a particularly curious example. Because again, the court did not move the law by even a millimeter in a pro-business direction. It did not limit standing of environmental plaintiffs to bring environmental claims against businesses in federal court. It did not find preemption of suits against industry in state or federal courts. In fact, these suits uh, were remanded to the lower courts and could continue. It did not in any way limit or undo any of what Massachusetts versus EPA did. It did absolutely nothing 
the blunt, limit, slow, or stall the proliferation of regulations governing greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, in stark contract to Massachusetts versus EPA, which in many ways did dramatically affect the course of the law in a, in a direction that the business community finds most unfavorable, in contrast to Massachusetts versus EPA, which did expose businesses to regulatory constraints and liability that they had not been exposed to before, AEP did nothing but leave the law as it had found it. It corrected what a clearly erroneous holding of the Second Circuit. Uh, it did nothing to make the law of the land more business friendly today than it had been before. And I think in that way, AEP actually is emblematic of a lot of the cases that are pointed to or identified as supposedly pro-business cases. In most of these cases, what we see the court doing is the court rejecting or turning away innovative or entrepreneurial efforts by state attorneys general or plaintiff's lawyers or some other group to move the law in a direction that will enable plaintiffs or, or others to use the courts to advance social policy goals or to achieve goals that they have not been able to achieve in the legislature. But the court refusing to open those doors is not moving the law in a direction. It is not being an activist court that is shifting the law to the benefit of one set of groups or another. It is simply a court that is saying, if these sorts of suits are to go on, if these sorts of emissions are supposed to be controlled, it's not our job to do it. It's the job of the political branches, and if you can win there, well, then the victory is yours. But if you can't, don't come to us for another bite of the apple. And so I think what AEP shows, this is not a court that's really doing business any favors. It's just not a court that's doing the, the business community's opponents any favors either. Thank you. Our final speaker, Andrew Trask, is an attorney with the firm of McGuire Woods LLP, where he is co-chair of the Securities Class Action Litigation Group. Uh, he has participated in the defense of more than 100 class actions. I'm exhausted just hearing about that. Um, uh, and has also worked on mass torts and other uh, areas of litigation. Uh, he is the co-author with Brian Anderson of a book called The Class Action Playbook, published recently. And he also maintains the Class Action Countermeasures blog, which is one of the first places I send people on the web who want to uh, begin keeping up with developments in class action law. Uh, he received his BA and JD, both with honors from the University of Chicago, another Chicago grad here today. Uh, please join me in welcoming Andrew Trask. Thanks very much, Walter. Um, and thanks, everybody. I was in the little green room that they provide beforehand, and they handed out a list of the attendees. I have to say, I don't think I've ever been in a place where I would be honored just to be among the audience, let alone loud up on a panel. So um, really, it's a huge honor to be here. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is what the Supreme Court did with class actions in this term. There were five of them. We'll focus on one, which is the one that I think everybody paid attention to the most, and that is Walmart v. Dukes. Um, but what I want to start with is just explaining what exactly class actions are, because while a lot of people will throw around the term, it's always good to get as good an understanding of them as possible. So here's the five-minute course in class action law, and by the end of this, you'll all be totally qualified to go out and litigate them. And I'm going to start with the least possible hypothetical I can think of. Let's suppose that Walter Olson decides to file a lawsuit. And let's suppose that it's on behalf of everybody in this room. Let's say that, like good libertarians and good Washington, D.C. residents, everybody goes out for drinks afterwards. 
You know, somewhat implausibly, they all show up at the same bar. Somewhat implausibly, they all seem to order something like the same drink. But somewhat more plausibly, being good libertarians, everybody pays for themselves. You know, at the end of this, a lot of people get sick. Nobody's entirely sure why. Maybe we drank too much. It could just be that we drank the wrong things. Anyways, Walter decides that clearly it's the bar's fault, and so therefore the bar should pay. Like I said, this is totally, totally incomprehensible to anyone who knows Walter Olson. But, you know, he decides that he's going to bring a lawsuit. Now, he could sue just on behalf of himself, but his bar tab's only about $100, you know, and that's not really worth the money. On the other hand, if he were to sue on behalf of everybody in this room, we're talking a couple of thousand dollars. And, you know, I recognize a few faces out there. It could be even higher. So... At the end of that, we're talking about something that's actually worth bringing a lawsuit about. Now, if you look around the room, we've got, I would guess, 60 to 70 people here. That's too many people for everybody to bring their own lawsuit and all crowd into the same courtroom. The judge would just throw up his hands. And so the federal rules have a provision for situations like this, and it's called the class action provision, or more formally to those of us who practice law, it's called Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Here's what Rule 23 provides. It has two parts to it, 23A and 23B. There are actually about four or five parts after that, and none of them are important for today's discussion. Rule 23A has four hurdles you have to jump to see whether or not you're going to be a member or whether or not you can certify a court or a, a lawsuit as a class action, which then allows you to go forward. By the way, what does it mean to certify a class? It means that after that, Walter Olson can go into court by himself, prove up his claims, if he wins, everybody in the room wins. If he loses, everybody in the room loses. None of us can bring a lawsuit after that because we've all been precluded by Mr. Olson's loss. So, you know, we can all tell where we'd be rooting in that particular case. Anyways, there are four things that he has to demonstrate first and foremost before he even gets into what kind of class action he's bringing. What are those four things? The first one's called numerosity and the, the jargony sort of rule-based application of this is whether or not a class is so numerous that joinder of all parties is impracticable, which is a, just another way of saying impractical. And how can you tell that? Well, for the most part, the courts have a lower limit. It's 40. So looking around the room, we'd all pass that. We've got 60 to 70 people here. The second piece, and I'm going to want you to pay attention to this one because it'll come up later and there will be a quiz, um, is commonality. And the question there is whether or not there is a common issue of law or fact that unites everybody in the room. We all went to the same bar, right? Maybe we all ordered the same drink. So it sounds like they probably passed that as well. The third question is whether or not we can meet typicality. And the question there is whether or not Walter Olson is typical of everybody in the room. I'll let you answer that one for yourselves. But, you know, for purposes here, we can say that he was at the bar, so was everybody else. It's possible that he was typical of everyone in the room. And the final question is adequacy, you know, which is whether or not Walter Olson is adequate. No, no, that's not entirely right. It's whether or not he would serve as an, an adequate representative of the class. And there are two or three questions that courts really ask there. The first and most important is, is there some conflict of interest between the class representative and the rest of the class or within the class itself, you know, where if one half of the class were to recover, the other half would be deprived of the same recovery. That's the kind of conflict we're talking about. In addition, courts will also ask at times whether Mr. Olson has, you know, the adequate zeal and vigor, which are two words that are used often to pursue everyone's interests, whether or not he has sufficient independence from his attorneys to stand up to them if their interests conflict with the class's interests, um, and similar questions along those veins. A few courts ask whether or not you have sufficient character and credibility. Once again, I'm not going to comment. 
Um, but those are the questions that get asked for the first part. There are then three different buckets that you can put a class action plaintiff into. These are the three different types of class actions you can bring. The first kind are under 23B1. We don't have to worry about those today, but let's call those the zero-sum game class actions. Those are the ones where if, if you were to have everybody decide them as individual actions, some people's individual victories would mean other people's individual defeats within the class. The classic example people use is deciding river rights. And for anyone who's ever driven along a river, what you have is people at the top of the river, people at the bottom of the river. The guys at the top of the river get in first and get a good ruling. The guys at the bottom of the river very rarely get what they want. That's the kind of one that's done under Rule 23b1. Rule 23b2, which developed during the civil rights years, um, is usually reserved for injunctive or declaratory relief. Those are the two things that are actually written into the rule. And the logic behind it is that if we were to go out and seek an injunction, that at that point what would happen is, you know, it doesn't really matter how the rest of us are doing. If Walter Olson wins that, the injunction applies to all of us. And if he loses, no one else is going to get the injunction later on. That particular rule, therefore, usually doesn't have quite as rigorous an inquiry as the next one I'm going to talk about, um, but does have a few pieces in it that, that allow it to be somewhat more easily certified in some circuits. Other circuits have decided under different kinds of case law that there's a cohesiveness requirement that's not actually in the rule that would still be somewhat difficult to reach. The third kind, the kind that is most frequently brought, and it's an opt-out kind, which means you don't have to be a part of the class even if you were at the bar that day, is the Rule 23b3 class action. And in the Rule 23b3 class action, you're seeking monetary damages, which means that you have to prove two more things aside from those four hurdles I already mentioned. The first thing is not just that there's a common issue out there, but that common issues predominate over any individual questions that might come up. So the question of whether or not people are th prone to throw up after drinking, you know, if that turns out to be a really big issue in the case, you might not have a predominance of common issues. The second thing is whether or not there is a superior, whether or not the class action is the superior way, and it's called superiority, of deciding this issue in the courts. And so the question there is, for example, if people had large enough tabs on their own that they could bring their own individual lawsuits, a class action isn't superior. It's better if people bring their own lawsuits. If it turns out that there was a small, you know, Washington, D.C., let's call it liquor establishment court where people could go in and individually litigate small claims involving drinks, you know, that would probably be a superior way to bring a class action. But if those don't exist, a class action might be the way to go. Now, class actions, once you prove your way through one of these sets of rules, do a miraculous thing. They take a $25 claim, or in this case, a $100 bar tab, and they turn it into a multi-million dollar claim. Because what happens is, you go from litigating one person's small claim to litigating 100 people's, 1,000 people's, possibly even a million people's $100 claims. And you can see where that would stack up pretty quickly. So there are two different ways that people tend to approach class action litigation. And when I say people, I mean plaintiff's attorneys, defense attorneys, and courts. And we're going to call these, for the sake of you know, argument today, the mechanical way and the magical way. And here's what I mean by each of those. The mechanical way of approaching a class action is the following. Here's what the rule says. Here is, you know, what the situation is in front of us, and we're going to mechanically apply the rule in this case to see whether or not you get a class action at the end of the inquiry. If you can meet all of these requirements, great. If you can't, we're very sorry. You're going to have to go back and try something different. We're not going to add in anything special. We're not going to talk about the particular policy goals of the class action. We're not going to talk about the particular policy goals we have in general. 
you know, we're just going to look at whether or not this follows through when you look at the rule itself. Um, the other way, what we'll call the magical way, but we could call any number of other things, sort of goes like this. And this is an argument that gets used by, at different times, plaintiffs, defendants, and courts. This is a class action. The normal rules of civil procedure and evidence do not apply here. It's also possible the normal rules of mathematics and statistics won't apply here. But what's important is, for whatever reason, we have a class action, and therefore we need this to be somewhat different in this case. Now, the Supreme Court this year took on an unprecedented five class actions when it was doing its rulings. And what was interesting to me as I read through them, you know, afterwards, and frankly was reading some of the opinions that dealt with the fallout, is that while you couldn't really classify the court as pro or anti-business when you took out the five different rulings, you could classify it as either mechanical or magical. Let's just run very briefly through the five, you know, and then what I'll do is circle back around to the one. But the five cases were Walmart versus Dukes, which got a lot of press play, AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion, which Mr. Pilon has, has already talked about, but which also got a lot of press. Um, both of those, incidentally, were decided for Walmart and AT&T Mobility, respectively. So pro-business, pro-business, two to nothing. We're doing great here, right? It's definitely a pro-business court. Smith versus Bayer Corporation, which was decided against Bayer Corporation. The specific issue in Smith versus Bayer Corporation was whether or not if you defeat class certification in one case, you can take that defeat and take it to another court where the plaintiffs are trying again with the same case and say, they already lost class certification in this other court. You've got to make them lose here again. And the court said in a nine to nothing opinion authored by Justice Kagan, you can't do that. You can only get preclusion after a class is certified. The other two cases, Erica Jones versus Halliburton, which asked whether or not there was an additional loss causation requirement in securities class actions, I'm not going to go into great detail on that, but it basically asked whether or not you had, the plaintiffs had to prove an extra little bit in order to certify a securities class action. The court there ruled that they did not, cannot really be qualified as a win for Halliburton. So we'll take that one as a pro-plaintiff case as well. And then finally, Matrix Initiatives versus Syracuseano, which didn't have to do with Rule 23 itself, but instead a follow-on statute called the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act. And what it said was that in that particular case, the plaintiffs had met the additional requirements there to survive a motion to dismiss. So out of five class action cases this term, three of them decided in favor of plaintiffs, two decided in favor of defendants, which are usually businesses, hardly a pro-business record in this case. What they did all do, though, was this. Every single one of these opinions rejected some additional requirement to Rule 23. Walmart versus Dukes, which we'll get into in more depth in a moment, said you couldn't do certain additional things to get a class certified. AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion said a class action just by virtue of being a class action does not trump the Federal Arbitration Act, no matter how much you might like it to. Smith versus Bayer Corporation said no matter how much you really want to preserve that class certification win that you had in West Virginia, you cannot just go to another court and tell them to do the exact same thing. Erica Jones, Fund versus Halliburton said, no matter what the Fifth Circuit gave you guys as a gift from the gods in the form of loss causation, you know, securities class actions operate like other class actions under Rule 23. And Matrix Initiatives said, you know, here are the two requirements to prove scienter and intent under the private, you know, under the PLSRA. And that's all they, you know, that's all the plaintiffs have to do. They don't have any additional requirements as well. In each case, one side got adventuresome, to use the term that was used years ago in another class action case, about the arguments they were making. And in each case, the Supreme Court said, no, bring it back, look at the text of Rule 23. 
Now, I'm not the only one that thinks this. I wish I was. I wish I could get up in front of you and give you something revolutionary and you could all go home and talk about how brilliant you know, the guy was that you heard last. Instead, Judge Easterbrook was talking about this a few weeks ago. He decided a case called In Re Aquedots. The, the case itself is really interesting. I encourage you to go look at it later. If you get the federal reporter version, there's a color picture. So, you know, that's always a good thing in a federal opinion. But here's the part that he said that I think is really important overall. Um, as he was talking about a really adventuresome argument that the district court bought on behalf of the plaintiff, or I mean on behalf of the defendants, the business folk in this case, and he rejected. A district court is no more entitled to depart from Rule 23 than it would be to depart from one of the Supreme Court's decisions after deeming the court's doctrine counterproductive. Rule 23 establishes a national policy for the judicial branch. Individual district judges are not free to prefer their own policies. The court made this point twice in its most recent term. See Walmart Stores Incorporated versus Dukes and Erica P. John Fund versus Halliburton. Now, I do take issue with Judge Easterbrook on one point there. I do think that all five cases actually evince that particular policy. Um, but here's what I mean when you see this play out in one case in particular. And for that, let's go to Walmart versus Dukes. And let's remember one thing going in. Class actions are big business. They are huge for everybody involved, for plaintiffs, they mean the difference between no fees and multi-million dollar fees. That's enough for plaintiffs to get really adventuresome. For defendants, they're the difference between a $25 claim and bet the company litigation. That's a great reason to get adventuresome in your arguments. For courts, they can be the difference, if properly applied, between a manageable docket and an absolutely insane docket that can never be handled without appointing scores more federal judges. Now, given our record of appointing and confirming federal judges in this country, you can see where that's probably not going to be one that they're going to root for. So everybody, in different ways, is looking to make sure that they win these cases at all costs, you know, by making the strongest, most vigorous arguments they can, and by stretching arguments as far away from the text as possible where necessary. And this is why it's really important that courts actually hew back to the text as much as they can. So in Walmart versus Dukes, here was the basic set of facts. Betty Dukes was an African-American female greeter at Walmart. For those of you who've never had to go into Walmart, here's what a greeter is. They're the person who wears the vest at the front door, says hello to you when you come in, and makes you feel welcome. Um, they have an additional purpose, which I think you know most of you have probably seen in some of the psychological literature. If somebody greets you at the door, it turns out you're far less likely to steal than if nobody says anything to you as you walk in. We're all human beings. We're all hardwired to be social. Somehow, when somebody says hi as we walk in, apparently we feel worse about walking out without paying. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that Walmart's done as a result, and it's worth paying these readers $10 an hour to stand at the front, you know, promote the store, and at the same time, possibly minimize threat or theft in a nice, happy, friendly way. Betty Dukes was passed over for promotion a couple of times, and she believed it was because she was both black and female, and she wanted to bring a lawsuit as a result. The lawyers that she got looked at the numbers and decided that, you know, it might be possible that there's a, some real discrimination against women here. So they ditched the racial component of the claim and tried to just bring a class action based on gender discrimination, hoping that they could prove it with these statistics that they found. They brought this to the lower court. They found a bunch of other women to come in along as well. By the way, each of the women had really different claims when you read through them, and it's not something that shows up in the district court opinion. It shows up in the dissent to the first Ninth Circuit opinion. But the ultimate result was that the argument was made, these are all women, they've all suffered some form of discrimination at the hands of Walmart, and that's reason enough to certify a class. And Your Honor, to demonstrate that the mechanism is the same in each case, we've got two types of proof. Here's the statistics, and here's a social scientist who's gonna talk about something called social framework analysis. Now, social framework analysis is somewhat controversial even among social scientists. It amounts to the following. 
If you go through and ask people a bunch of questions, you may find that there's a corporate culture and that that corporate culture includes some common elements. If that means that you're transmitting certain, if that means that you're transmitting certain different kinds of messages through that strong corporate culture, then you may have a common mechanism in place. The one question the district court never answered as it ruled on the class certification motion was the following. If you've got what appears to be you know, a common discriminatory, cult discriminatory culture where people refer to female employees as genie cues, which is one thing that actually did happen, but on the other hand, you have a strong corporate policy of not discriminating against women that's enforced through, for example, monthly meetings where people are reminded of the diversity requirements, you know, which of those is gonna win out given the strong corporate culture? And that's something the district court decided to punt on because it was really interested in enforcing civil rights. And how do we know this? It began its opinion by discussing Martin Luther King and the importance of the class action and civil rights, which are absolutely true statements, but which kind of tipped its hand as to the result it was hoping for in this case. So the district court, first of all, ruled that there was a common issue involved, you know, and that it was a common issue that could predominate if you wanted Rule 23b3, but it wasn't even gonna get there. Despite the fact that the women were asking for back pay, it ruled that what they were really asking for was a change in policy that was injunctive in nature, and therefore you only had to go under Rule 23b2, that second bucket. So despite the presence of large amounts of cash that made people bring the case in the first place, this was really an injunctive case, according to the district court. Walmart appealed to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit gave a slightly different account of what the case was really about. Um, it said first and foremost that there was a common issue, but that it didn't have to get into social framework in inquiries because that was a merits inquiry, and that's not something that's supposed to happen in class actions. You're not supposed to get into the merits of the case. There's an old case called Eisen v. Carlisle and Jacqueline that had a piece of text in it that, that hinted at that, but that if you read it in context, didn't really mean the same thing. But the Ninth Circuit found this, pounced on it, and basically went along with it. Um, it also held that Rule 23b2 could definitely include some form of cash relief so long as it was incidental. And in this particular case, it believed that there was, you know, the millions of dollars of cash at stake in back pay claims were incidental to the injunctive relief. This went up then to the Ninth Circuit on Bonk. The Ninth Circuit on Bonk affirmed the Ninth Circuit below. It actually reversed, however, some of the reasoning behind that. It said that there was no problem with the merits inquiry in this particular case. And in fact, the district court had made that merits inquiry. So where the Ninth Circuit below had said, shouldn't have a merits inquiry in the first place, glad we didn't do that, the on Bonk circuit said, no, 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 absolutely, absolutely not the case. Um, and then it once again affirmed the 23B2 classification. There were dissents at the on Bonk level as there was at the lower level. One of them was by Judge Kaczynski, who is going to be speaking here later today. It was short and pointed. I encourage you to ask him about it later, um, particularly because of the short and pointed nature. But the gist of it, and I hope I'm not misquoting, is that really the only common issue that was shared among the class members was that they were female and happened to be members of the lawsuit, and that that wasn't enough. When this got to the Supreme Court, there was a surprising result for people who are buying into the pro and anti-business story. Nine to nothing, the court held that this should not have been certified. And it held that it should not have been certified because it never belonged in the 23B2 bucket to begin with. You know, with millions of dollars at stake, depending on people's individual back pay claims, that's the kind of thing where you need Rule 23B3 and you need the protections built in there. Then, five to four, the court also ruled that in this particular case, commonality required a more rigorous analysis than had been performed by the lower courts. And that's something that, while it seemed excessive in the opinion, had been floating around among litigators for a long time. It's very easy with any group to find a common issue. Are we all standing in the same room today? Yes, we are. That makes us common. The question there really should be, 
does the fact that we're all standing in the same room together mean we should all win? And the answer there is, don't know. It depends on what the case is about, and that requires a greater inquiry. But this is definitely one of those cases, as you look at it, where the Supreme Court held that this was a mechanical application of Rule 23 that was required and not this more magical one where you say, this is a class action, we should definitely be changing the rules in order to enable it to be certified to get the result we like. And that really is, I'd argue, what happened all term. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.